Good leadership requires you to surround yourself with people of diverse perspectives who can disagree with you without fear of retaliation. Doris Kearns Goodwin. Hey, friends and family, welcome to a brand new episode of Intentional Living and Leadership with me, your host, Cal Walters. I know that your time is valuable, and I'm truly honored that you would spend some of it with this community. We put a lot of effort into hopefully making this a resource for you on your journey to live a more intentional life, to be a more inspiring leader, and to make your highest contribution to the world. Before we dive into today's content, I just want to say a special thank you to Julie Blim, Dean Zawaki. Jamie Flora, Sean Brady, and Chris Woodland for editing, mixing, and producing the tribute that we released two weeks ago to my dear friend, Chris Geeky. If you haven't listened to that episode or watched it on YouTube, please take a moment to learn about this great man that impacted everyone that knew him in a positive way and was killed in Afghanistan 10 years ago. About a month ago, I was preparing to be interviewed on a podcast about PTSD, and I was talking to my wife before the interview, and I said to her, you know, sweetie, I don't think I have anything to share on this PTSD podcast about PTSD or trauma. And she said to me, Cal, she said, when you returned from Iraq back in 2010, you were a different Cal. And then she mentioned, she was like, Cal, I don't think that you ever truly processed Chris's death. And Chris was killed in Afghanistan right about the same time that I arrived in Iraq. So working on this project and remembering Chris in a very deliberate way and remembering his impact was really healthy for me. It also reminded me that Chris epitomized what we talk about on this show, which is living a courageous life, making your life count, being intentional about the way you live and the way you lead, inspiring others to be their best selves. That's exactly what Chris did. So thank you, Chris for continuing to inspire me today and countless others. And I'm really excited about today's content. Today we have a very special guest, Lisa Fain, the CEO of the Center for Mentoring Excellence and the founder of Vista Coaching. As you'll soon see, Lisa is brilliant, but she also has a rare ability to put often difficult and confusing concepts into very practical terms and steps that leaders can go and implement. Lisa went to Northwestern University for her Bachelor's of Science in Social Policy, and she went to Northwestern for law school. On today's episode, we discuss what Lisa means by diversity and inclusion. We get real practical on steps that leaders can take to improve the inclusiveness of their teams and their organizations. We explore mentorship, and we talk about what Lisa thinks mentorship is all about and how to find a good mentor and be a good mentee. And we discuss her new book, Bridging Differences for Better Mentoring. And one note, we recorded this interview before the tragic death of George Floyd. So that is not discussed in this interview. But I do think the principles of diversity inclusion that we talk about are timeless. You can find show notes for this episode and all of my episodes at calwalters.me. And also send me an email. Let me know what you think. I've been getting a lot of emails lately, and, and it's been great to connect with this community. So please reach out or write a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think. And without any further ado, let's jump into today's content, my interview with Lisa Fain. Lisa, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. 
It is so neat to have you come on this show. This We're going to talk about a lot of neat topics that we haven't covered on the show, diversity and inclusion, mentorship, all of which are so important to leaders. And I'd love to start by asking you a little bit about the background that probably isn't covered in your bio. My audience has heard your bio at this point, but can you take us back to maybe what helped you develop your why and tell us about your why for doing diversity and inclusion work with a focus on mentorship? Yeah, you know, I, it, I wish I could say that it was a clear, a clear path. It, it's funny because looking back now, I see the red thread that loops all of the pieces together. Um, but I would say my biggest why is I have two daughters um, who are um, both teenagers now. When I started in this work, I was, um, uh, they were quite young, and I was working uh, at a law firm. And I, um, it was a pure case of be careful what you're good at. Um, I was a pretty good litigator. Um, and it wasn't really my soul's work, but I was working a lot and I was managing a young team. And, um, uh, I, one morning I had pulled an all nighter. I had gone downstairs for breakfast, come back up to my office. And at the time before cell phones were ubiquitous, there's the red light on my phone, which meant I had a voicemail. So I checked my voicemail and my then four-year-old had hit speed dial and she had left me a message and she had said, mommy, come home. We need a mommy, not a lawyer. And um, it was one of those moments where everything comes together. I will tell you, even telling the story, I've told the story dozens and dozens of times, I still get emotional. It was the best, worst gift ever. And it made me realize how important it is to live my values. And my values really are to be the kind of to have the kind of work that can allow me to be the kind of mother and the kind of professional that creates a better world doing work that I care about. And it was the first awakening for me that I could own that. I didn't have to wait for the opportunity to come. To come. I didn't have to, to, take, to follow the tide of where my career had taken me. Although it had brought me success and I had a, a, a great job and all of that, it didn't fill my soul. And when, once I found this work, I found the field of diversity and inclusion, which I found by practicing employment law um, and really, um, you know, advising my client of their liability and needing to have a more diverse, needing to have more diversity to meet their mission. Um, it was when the two things came together, creating inclusive workplaces, connecting with consumer, making a better world and really feeling good about the work that I have. So so being the model for my kids and my daughter's generation and girls growing up that you can it's not about having it all. It's about having a having a life that is meaningful where you're making a contribution that really fills your soul instead of spending your time the way life takes you. Wow. All right, let's just end the episode there. That was incredible. <laughs> So when we use words like diversity and inclusion, I think we probably all have different images that pop into our mind based on our experience, based on our backgrounds. What do you mean when you think, when you use those terms and what pictures come into your mind when you think about diversity and inclusion? Yeah, it's a great question. So diversity means difference, right? Diversity is about, and, and it's difference. It is, it is the typical categories like gender and race and sexual orientation and so forth, but it's also deeper than that. The way you think, uh, what your motivations are, your why, differences in the why, the generational differences, all of those things that make up who you are. So diversity answers the question who, 
and it's about difference, representation. Inclusion answers the question, what? What is it you're creating, right? And it, so inclusion is what you're trying to create by having more diversity. It's a better work environment. It's a sense of belonging. It's um, uh, creating a place where people feel engaged um, and a world, frankly, where people feel engaged when you're talking about it outside of the workplace context. So diversity is the who, inclusion is the what. And the other um, area you didn't ask me to define, but I think it's important, is the how which is cultural competency. So how do you go from diversity to inclusion? That's through the skill of cultural competency, which is how do you bridge differences? How do you make sense of the diversity so you can create the kind of environment that you want? Wow, so there's so many places we can go with that. What, or I guess, how do people even begin to develop cultural competency? What, what advice would you give to leaders out there? What do you want them to hear to take some of those first steps to develop that cultural competency? Yeah, such a great question. So I would say um, ownership, awareness, and shifting your perspective. Let me talk about each of those. The first thing is ownership, is as a leader, owning the responsibility to, to learn about difference and to leverage difference. And this is whether you're somebody who has um, never felt like an outsider or somebody who's felt like an outsider in your own life. And frankly, I believe everybody um, has felt like an outsider at some point in their life, which is their way to connect with diversity, and, with diversity and inclusion. But the first step is ownership, accepting that it is your responsibility as a leader to help people feel included. And that requires understanding difference, so ownership. The second is awareness, which is, starts, frankly, with self-awareness is thinking about when have I felt like an outsider, thinking about what are the elements of my own identity, right, that help, that influence how I show up in the world. We often do an activity in our workshops, um, which is like an iceberg. We ask people to imagine an iceberg. And there's, you know, one-eighth of the iceberg that's visible, right, and seven-eighths that are below the waterline. And if you think of your own identity as an iceberg, there's things about you that people see. You might, you know, you might, look at me and say, okay, in your iceberg, Lisa, you're a woman, you have, you can see me on the, we're looking at each other by technology here, so you can see I have short, dark hair, right? If you're seeing me live, you would know I'm also quite short, you know, things like that. I have light skin and so forth, things that are obvious. Underneath the waterline are all these things you can't see about me, but that affect the way I show up, how I think, my education, um, uh, the fact that I have a family, um, I have that fact that I have young kids right, the makeup of my family, all of those things, um, my religious background, where that I grew up in the Northeast and I now live in the Pacific Northwest, all of these things affect how I show up and how the world views me. So it's important for a leader to be aware of their own iceberg before they can start to notice some of those other things. Um, the other thing I want to say about awareness before I get to this perspective shifting is recognizing that diversity is not something you connect despite right? I mean, how often have you said, oh, we connected despite our differences? Yeah. Why, why can't we say we connected because of our differences? The differences themselves are something that's beautiful, and you don't have to have commonality in order to create connections. So that's something that's so important for leaders to know. I just want to say it one more time. Like, you don't have to have commonality in order to have connections. So the, and the third is perspective shifting, is being willing to, ha to have the curiosity and the compassion to understand that somebody may see things different 
differently than you do and to try to see them from their perspective. It's not about changing who you are or not being authentic to yourself, but it's about having the compassion and the curiosity to say, you know, how might it be different for you than it is for me? Um, so ownership, awareness, and perspective shifting are really the three steps towards cultural competency. That's so helpful. I, I don't know that I've heard someone explain diversity and inclusion as well as you just did and give some practical tips. What seem to be some of the biggest barriers to leaders getting on board with creating a more diverse and inclusive culture? So the most important, the, the most common barriers. One is this perception that diversity and inclusion is something else we have to do. I don't have time for it. I got to do the stuff I got to do in order to do my job or in order to be the leader I want to be, right? I don't have time to focus on diversity and inclusion. And, and what I would say to that is, it's not an other thing. It is the skill of cultural competency and the skill of leveraging differences is a basic competency of being a good leader. And so it's part of what, as leaders, we do all the time. This exercising of curiosity and compassion is... Um, is really something that we, it's just an expectation, right, of, of basic good leadership. Um, so that's, that's thing one. Thing two is not tying it into the organizational lie. So I'm assuming you're asking me this question for organizational leaders. And a lot of times where diversity and inclusion efforts fail is um, there's not enough of a buy-in as to how it, how it connects to the, to, the, to the business priorities, right, and business strategy. And the truth is there actually is a return on investment for focusing on inclusion. <clears throat> it's better performance, better, uh, better, better team, but high, higher performing teams, better uh, recruitment of talent, right, better engagement, more inclusive work cultures that, that create loyalty and a sense of belonging. Mm. We've all seen the research, you know, on what a difference belonging makes. In helping um, helping achieve results, um, not to mention the public um, health impacts of of belonging beyond the organizational context. So, not having it be a buy-in to um, the organizational strategy, and then the third is not owning the responsibility. This is the ownership piece I talked about before. Not owning the responsibility for creating an inclusive work work environment, particularly for you know for white men. Right. So think like that's I, I believe in it. Right. They may say, I really believe in it. I know it's important, but it's actually that's not my story. That's not my journey. Um, and if that is the mentality, we will never make a change. And the reason is because creating an inclusive environment is everybody's responsibility, whether you felt marginalized in the past or not. And so the biggest, biggest, biggest barrier is not leaning in to um, to that journey for leaders across across the spectrum. Have you seen certain leaders do this well? I would love for you to maybe share with us if there are any that come to mind of good examples of this in your experience as you do this with coaching and teaching and consulting uh, with the work that you do. Yeah. Um, so the best example is um, leaders who create relationships, vertical relationships, right, in the, in the organization. And they're reaching in every direction, up, across, and down in the hierarchical structure to get to know 
and create meaningful relationships in the workplace. You know, my own expertise is in mentoring, so I see that most often is leaders who become mentors and open themselves up to mentoring to other, from others in the organization, even those who are more junior to them, so that they really can learn. Um, so leaders who do this well become mentors, and they have mentors. Um, and real quick, Lisa, what more. does mentorship mean to you as you're talking about that? Because I, I imagine your definition might be different than a lot of a listeners' definitions. Yeah. Mentorship can be formal or informal, right? You can have an informal mentorship that's not part of a formal program in your organization um, uh, or a formal mentorship, which is part of something that's a, a program in your organization where your organization sponsors a mentorship program. But what I mean by mentorship really is a relationship, formal or informal, that's focused on the development of the mentee, right? So it's a learning relationship where the mentee sets some goals for learning and the mentor, it's not the mentor's job to bring the answers. It's the mentor's job to bring the questions that help the mentees get the answers. And so um, what formal and informal to me have in common is that there is some structure and it's focused on learning. I'm not talking about having an advisor. I'm not talking about having coach or a sponsor, although I think all those things are really important. I think it's an and, not an or. But when I'm talking about mentoring, I'm really talking about having a learning relationship where you're focused on growth and learning. Okay, cool. I'm sorry to cut you off there. You were talking about the good examples and how mentoring has the vertical yeah. examples and mentorship. Yep. So, so focusing on learning and growth. And having that curiosity is huge. The second piece is to be an advocate for diversity and inclusion and an ally, both, both an ally and an advocate. And you do that by making it part of what you talk about as something that's important. Here's an example of, a leader, of something a leader can do. If you're having a performance review conversation in your organization and you happen to notice that everybody who's gotten a meets, excuse me, everybody who's gotten exceeds expectations is a male or is um, white or went to uh, such and such schools or has such and such pedigree or what have you, as an advocate for inclusion in the workplace to say, wait a minute, what's this all about? What are we missing, right? Or if you hear something, something more overt in the workplace that's just not okay, right, or, or might teeter on it, to say, to use it as a, as a teaching moment about what kind of culture you want to create. And of course, always to walk the walk of um, uh, being inclusive uh, in the organization. You know, here's a simple thing. I don't know if you remember, um, uh, there was a FedEx commercial from a million moons ago. And in this commercial, there's a junior guy who sits at the table and he says, you know, everybody's talking and they're trying to solve the problem. And he says, I think we should do expedited shipping. And everybody keeps talking, trying to solve the problem. And then the senior guy at the end of the table says, I think we should do expedited shipping. And everybody says, yeah, what he said, right? So this happens all the time in the workplace. Yeah. It happens more often to women and people of color um, or people who feel marginalized in the workplace. And a very simple tool for inclusion that a leader can do is to say, wait a minute, I think what you just said is something was Jane's idea. Um, or this, this, this builds on something Jane said before. Jane, I wonder what you think about this. And really directing the conversation to pull people in and not just going with the tide um, of where the conversation goes, but recognizing that responsibility to be an ally. You, um, you never have to give people a voice because people have their own voice. 
but you have to open doors so people can use their voice um, if you are able to be somebody who who has the power to open that door, which the leaders in the organization do. So it's about exposure um, and making sure that the image within the organization is set, um, uh, the biases within the organization are challenged so that you can have more exposure from people from all different backgrounds. Do you have any bad examples? Because sometimes for me, it's often just as easy to learn from good examples as it is bad examples. What does it look like to do this wrong as a leader? Yeah, to assume you know, right? I mean, I know, yeah, I know how to solve that, right? Here's what you should do, right? Here's, here's, here's what I think you mean, right? Um, if you, there's a difference between ownership, which I talked about before, and um, presuming you have the answers, right? So, so the biggest mistake people make is sort of sitting back, um, either, either sitting back and just letting it be somebody else's story, or presuming that they have the answer. Um, so those, those are two big mistakes. Um, the other is not proactively reaching out to learn. You know, um, it makes a big, big difference if there's a uh, diversity and inclusion initiative in your organization and they're having an event, go. Tell other people to go, right? Don't assume that it's somebody else's job to make sure that it's a priority. So really taking that ownership. You know, there's always the the people who, who say one thing and then they don't, you know, they don't do what they're saying they should do. So telling, if you're a senior leader in the organization and you tell your people that diversity and inclusion is important, you gotta show that by your own comments. You know, I always recommend that somebody, that leaders in organization have three talking points about diversity and inclusion and why it's important to whatever their function in the organization is and keep rotating those. Um, they have to be authentic to them. So never talking about it, never incorporating it, um, never having the curiosity and the humility to know that you don't know everything, those are sure ways to make sure that it's not going to be promoted within your organization. And that's really helpful. I was engaged in an exercise the other day. I was in a leadership class and they asked us to take a moment and think about the three people that we trust the most and write them down. And so I wrote down the three people that I trusted the most, people that I admire the most. And then the next question was, what is the what are common traits among all three of these people. And sure enough, for me personally, all three of these people were white males. And the, the, whole mm -hmm. goal, the whole goal of the exercise was to show that we all have these biases that we probably either haven't fully acknowledged or, or just aren't aware of. And so I think, and, and one person at a totally separate, kind of a separate anecdote, I was on a trip to Gettysburg and we were learning some leadership lessons at Gettysburg. And one of the females, we were talking about mentorship and one of the females uh, in the context of the military said, this is great. We're all talking about mentorship, but who's going to mentor me? And it really hit a lot of us when we were thinking about, because a lot of our mentors look and have a lot of the same background. Mm -hmm. as we do. And so I think it does seem to me as you're just, I'm just hearing you talking that so, so much of this is about self-awareness and so much of it is about being curious, not just to better understand yourself, but to, to go look outward and try to better understand other people and how you can learn from their experiences. 
Yeah, I think that's such that's such a powerful thing, right? Another thing mm-hmm. that a leader can do is to seek out those mentorship relationships across difference. Um, you know, the exercise that you talked about, I often do one in my workshops called the Trusted Ten, which is very similar. After we have people look at their iceberg, they look at those characteristics and they put them across the top of the page. And across the side of the page, the ten people that they trust the most. And you make check marks. How many of them share those top characteristics? And it really does help people realize that their exposure and their biases are, it, it just creates, really creates an awakening. Um, uh, so your point is such a good one. And I think that that's really important, which gets to your question about what can a leader do? They can diversify their own connections and, their, and seek out people for their trusted 10 mm. who have some difference so that they can get more perspective. What is the biggest thing that you want leaders to know about mentorship and the best practices for mentoring people? Yeah, um, it's a contact sport, <laughs> right? And by that, I mean, um, not actually that it's a contact sport, but it is important to have that connection and that contact. And it's something that's active. It's not, it's not a passive, you know, my door is always open. Come by when you need me. Because the truth is what we as leaders never want to admit, but um, is quite true is there's always a power imbalance when you're dealing with a mentorship relationship, right? There's always this feeling by a mentee that they are imposing upon the mentor um, of their time and their wisdom and their taking. The truth, what we know from all the data is actually that there's something in it for the mentor, but mentees won't believe that until you create some structure and accountability around the mentoring relationship and really show up in the mentoring relationship by coming prepared, by coming with curiosity, um, by scheduling meetings and not saying just come when you need me. And you really create those structure and the and that framework so that you can neutralize that power imbalance, create a safe and trusting relationship in which the mentee can share his or her goals and aspirations and the mentor can really respond to those. But until or unless that structure is created and the mentor has to really be the one who says, yep, I want that because the mentee otherwise will feel like it's an imposition, um, then you're not going to have that kind of uh, freedom and vulnerability in the conversation. For the, I guess all of us can mentor someone and all of us can be mentored by someone. But for those that are thinking as you're talking through this about finding a mentor, what advice would you give to those who are looking for a mentor, both practically how you do find them and what qualities they should look for? Yeah. So the first thing I always say when, when I'm asked that question is think about what you want to learn. Remember, mentoring is a learning uh, relationship. So the first thing to do when you say, I want to find a mentor is what do you want to learn from that mentor? The second thing is don't just uh, ask somebody to be your mentor. Uh, first of all, don't just ask them right off the bat. You have to establish a, a relationship before you make the ask, unless you're in a mentoring program where that relationship, you know, that, that willingness is presumed. But if you're just finding somebody in an informal context, you have to build relationship, whether it's coffee, uh, you know, virtual coffee these days, right? Um, lunch, but really getting to know one another. So, so establish the foundation of the relationship. And then don't just select somebody who, um, because of the rapport, you want to make sure that person has the willingness and the availability to mentor you 
and that they are going to match up with what it is you want to learn. So, um, and as somebody who's really passionate about diversity, I would say find somebody with some element of difference, whether it's visible or non-visible um, elements of difference for that mentoring relationship so that you can really expand your own perspective. So do you be looking for people that have the same strengths as you do, or do you recommend maybe finding someone whose strengths are your weaknesses and vice versa? My answer to that is going to be a very unsatisfying, it depends. It depends on what it is you're trying to learn. I mean, I'm a big, I am a big believer in working on your strengths as well as trying to develop your weaknesses. And so it really depends on what your learning goal is. Um, uh, So I would say if you've identified what it is you want to learn, then you can think about who might be able to help me amplify those strengths um, or build upon my weaknesses. But I I don't, it's not, there's not an absolute uh, yes or no to that. So I have identified someone that I want to be my mentor. Uh, I've identified someone that I want to be my mentor. What do I say to them? How do I ask them to be my mentor? Yeah. Um, It's not as simple as will you be my mentor? (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, you might say, I, I might say something like, you know, Cal, I um, really admire the way that you have created community. And it's something that I'm really looking to develop mm-hmm. because um, I know that, you know, in my own um, aspiration to be a thought leader, community is going to be really important, but I've struggled with that in the past. You know, I notice you have a, a following of people, really what it is you admire, what you want to learn, what it is you admire, and why you've asked that. And then I, you want to be really specific about what it is that you're asking. So I might say something like, um, you know, I would love to set up a mentoring relationship and to have you be my mentor. What that means to me is meeting monthly. Um, you know, I would show up with an agenda and we would, uh, you know, I'd love to um, get your thoughts um, on how that structure might look for you, look like for you. But I would love to, you know, spend a year together um, where we you know, you can help me develop those skills, those community building skills. You know, what do you think? And I think the most important piece is what the, once you've established a willingness to be a mentor and a mentee is to co-create the framework for that mentoring relationship. You know, maybe monthly doesn't work. Maybe it's by bi- bi-monthly. Maybe it's for a longer period of time, you know, whatever, uh, quarterly or what have you. But really establishing that framework mentor and mentee diving in and creating the mentoring relationship is going to be really important once you both said yes. Does the mentee need to have something to give the mentor? I've heard some thought leaders say, you know, maybe tell them, hey, I'll, I'm, how can I add value? I just, I think sometimes there's a, maybe a hesitation to ask someone to be a mentor because you feel like this is a one-way relationship. I'm not getting anything out of this they're not going to want to spend their time trying to help me out. I'm so glad you asked me that question. So I think one of the key, one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about mentoring is it really is a reciprocal relationship. And so often mentees are reluctant to call upon the mentor because they feel like it's an imposition. But what we hear over and over and over again from the hundreds and hundreds of mentors with whom we've spoken, um, uh, both during and after their mentoring relationship is that what they get is they improve their own leadership skills. They get an enhanced perspective. Um, they gain a great sense of satisfaction and that there really is some reciprocity. It doesn't mean that, that as a mentee, um, you should, you know, 
take for granted that, of course, the mentor is going to be involved, be involved in, and sustain that enthusiasm. There is an obligation to continue to check in on the relationship and make sure that it continues to work for the mentor and the mentee. And I always encourage mentees to express appreciation, which is not just, hey, thanks for mentoring me. It's, I have really learned so much from you, Kale. You taught me this five-step model on how to engage a community, and it's made such a difference. I have built my community from 500 people to 5,000 people in three months implementing what you've said, and it's made such a difference for me really expressing what appreciation for what you've learned. And then at the end of the relationship, I think it is nice to, to share a memento of some sort. Or during the relationship, if there's a quote or a card, it doesn't have to be a grand gesture. But it is nice to, to be able to express appreciation in that way and in a way that's authentic um, to, to the mentee, um, but specific about what the learning thing is. That in, its, in and of itself can be really, really gratifying. I think that's a really good point because a lot of times, and we can all mentor, obviously, but a lot of times when people seem to be accomplished and they're successful, they've achieved appreciation, a lot of times is the biggest gift you can give someone is just saying, hey, I appreciate your time, public appreciation, a nice thank you card. I think that's a great point. What do you say to mentors who a mentee reaches out, says, hey, Lisa, I'd really love for you to be my mentor and you're sitting there thinking, man, I really wish I could mentor this person, but maybe this is one, one step too far or it's going to push me outside of the, the limited margin that I currently have in my life. What type, of, what type of framework would you give to mentors in deciding whether or not to mentor someone? Yeah, number one is don't say yes unless you're really able to commit the time. And there's lots of other ways you can add value to somebody if you can't mentor them, right? You can be a sponsor, which is about advocacy, right? You can um, be an advisor, which is more of sort of this drive-by, um, you know, hey, I have a problem. Can you help me solve it? Um, so you can offer to add value in other ways. Um, but, but don't say yes unless you have the time and the willingness. Um, I, I want to let me rewind for just a second because there's something, um, there's an important benefit to mentors that I didn't um, point out that I think will answer both answer this question and a prior question, which is, you know, a lot of times we'll talk to mentors before uh, well, we're kicking off a mentoring program and we meet with them separately from when we meet with the mentees and we ask the mentors what their fears are. And the mentors will say, I'm actually afraid I have, I don't have I, anything to offer. Hmm. And then in the middle and the end of the mentoring relationship, when we talk to them again, they say, you know, the biggest benefit here has been that it's reaffirmed my confidence that I have a lot to offer and it's helped me reflect on what I've learned along the way. And that is a humongous benefit to the mentors that they really appreciate um, because we all know that having the gratification of a journey, uh, a career journey well-lived is something that really is not even quantifiable. Um, and so what I would say to a mentor, um, if they, when they're asked, is to think about that and not to be dissuaded by the fact that they might not feel totally ready mm. to mentor the mentee. I like what you said too earlier. I think you mentioned that the mentee should come prepared for the meeting. And I've heard John Maxwell mm -hmm. say when he meets with people, Sometimes he's amazed at how much talking they do as opposed to listening. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it's the point he's making is he's the one who has all this experience, all this to offer, but the mentee spends all the time talking. Do you agree with that? Do you agree that generally speaking, the mentor should be doing more talking than the mentee? Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, ill-advised to contradict John Maxwell. <laughs> he is sort of a guru. Uh, <laughs> but I do disagree. I think that a mentor's job is not to have the answers. Hmm. A mentor's job is to have the questions. Hmm. And um, sometimes what mentees need is a safe place to talk it out. Hmm. And so I would not have an absolute answer. There are, there are plenty of times... And, and mentees should always be willing to listen and to take in more information and to take in the information and to benefit from the wisdom and the experience of their mentors. So he's 100% right in that regard. But I do think that a mentor should do more listening than, um, than talking. They should do more asking of questions and realizing that their own journey is not necessarily the journey that the mentee is, is meant to have, even if the mentee is coming asking for the benefit of the wisdom from that journey, right? It's funny because um, there's an example, you know, we did it once to train the trainer. And um, we asked our prospective trainees to come with an, to, to come demonstrate um, what the concept of mentoring is. And I was, I, I, this has lasted with me for a really long time. One of the prospective trainees came in and said, you know, it used to be that mentoring is like that 80s commercial that's a Tootsie Pop commercial where the old little kid goes to the owl. You remember this commercial Absolutely. and says how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Yes. Um, but that's not the role of a mentor. The mentor isn't to tell you how many licks. The, 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 um, the role of a mentor is to ask the question about how much time do you have to lick the lollipop, right? What flavor mm-hmm. are you trying to get to? All of those questions because it's not, it's, there is something about the jur- experiencing the journey themselves that's really instrumental to anybody's success um because you know a career trajectory is it is active it's not something that's passive that's so good i I love the focus on questions too it's amazing how powerful and revealing good questions can be do you have any go-to questions that mentors can ask or even the form of questions that maybe helps people elaborate and, and really dig into maybe things they haven't even thought about before. Yeah. And this will build on the thing you asked me in terms of, in terms of Maxwell and the experience is, you know, you might say something like, well, let me give you my perspective, blah, 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 share it. That's how it was for me. How might it be different from you, for you, right? How does this land for you? What's another perspective? Right. It's actually really important, especially when both mentor and mentee are nodding like, yeah, let's do that. Right. It's like, what other perspectives might we might, excuse me, what other perspectives might we be missing? Right. Mm. Somebody were to disagree with us. What would they say? Mm. It's a really important question. Um, how does this land for you? What might get in the way of you implementing this? Um, this was true for me. Could it be true for you? Right? Is really, um, uh, really, it's about inquiry. It's about opening up possibility as opposed to narrowing. I like that a lot. I had an author on about a month ago talking about 
mindsets and one of the critical success mindsets, he wrote a book called Success Mindsets, Dr. Ryan Godfordson. He talked about an open mindset and that's, that's what you're talking about is in a, a curiosity, an inquisitiveness, an ability to look outward and, and try to gain information from someone else, a willingness and a humility that, that you don't have all the answers. I really think that's, that's helpful. Um, Lisa, yeah. I, I understand that you have a book coming out or has already come out. Can you tell us about that book? I would love to hear about it. Yeah, I wrote a book with my mother, um, Lois Zachary, who's also the founder of Center for Mentoring Excellence. It's called Bridging Differences for Better Mentoring. And it's all about this intersection of exactly what we've been talking about, inclusion and mentoring. How in mentoring relationships do you invite difference in as a means of connecting, as a means of creating a meaningful mentoring relationship, and really um, a way to grow mentoring to grow your mentoring relationship and increase the effectiveness. And it's really helpful in the organizational context. It's helpful in the personal context um, to, to become aware of difference and really to use it as something that's a, a beautiful, constructive thing as opposed to something that's a division, something that's divisive. That's so cool. And what's your mom's background? So uh, my mom is Dr. Lois Zachary. She... Um, has written, this is her seventh book. It's my first. Wow. Um, and she really is one of, I mean, you know, I get to brag on her just a little bit, but um, she is really one of the world's experts in mentoring in an organizational context, context as a practitioner. Um, she also has her PhD in adult, adult development and, and, you know, deep background in that as well. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny because when I first started, when I first decided to join her back in, in 2015, I went to a conference that she couldn't come to. And it's funny, you know, I don't know if you can relate to this with one of your, your parents. Um, but, you know, I knew my mom in the context of mom and not necessarily in the context of, you know, a practitioner or a professional. So yes. um, she was, she was meant to do a live keynote and couldn't come. So she um, videoed in and I did the Q and A at the end of the, at the end of the keynote. And, um, you know, all I did was stand up and see who had any questions. And then I, you know, uh, facilitated that discussion. So I'm standing there. The, the thing is over. And there is a line of like 14 people waiting to talk to me, not because of me, but because they wanted to tell me how um, meaningful my mom's work had been in their own organizational context of setting up mentoring programs. So, um, you know, as my kids would say, she's the schniz. She's, <laughs> and uh, it's really fun um, to be able to learn from her and then to put my own um, expertise in, um, you know, cultural competency and inclusion on this work. Wow. That's so cool. I love that. Um, and I'll make sure for the listeners, I'll make sure and put a link to Lisa's book in the show notes of this episode. Lisa, I'd love to ask you, apart from the book that you've written, what are, would you say are maybe the top two books that you've gifted or that have really impacted you that you would recommend to our listeners? Such a great question. So um, you're making me choose two. It's such a hard thing. So you can do you three if you want. Can I do three? Okay. Um, so you mentioned mindset. I think Harold Dweck's book on mindset is really amazing. Um, it's gotten a lot of play and for good reason. This idea of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Growth mindset for mentors and mentees is huge. 
you know, as opposed to say, I'm not good with discipline. I'm not the kind of person who can have that accountability. I can be, I can learn. And it helps mentors also beat their uh, um, own preconceptions. So mindset is definitely one. There's a book called Switch by Chip and Dan Heath, which is about change management. Um, but anytime you're implementing anything like a in- diversity and inclusion initiative, um, it's a change management initiative. If you're implementing a mentoring program, it's a change management initiative. And it talks about how to change when change is hard and that you have to really speak to the, 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 the head, the heart, and shape the path. And that's really, really powerful. So mindset um, and switch. I'm looking at my um, bookshelf here. Um, and then, you know, there's another, there's, there's quite a few amazing books, but there's another one by Chip and Dan Heath that I like called The Power of Moments that I've gifted quite a bit, and it's really about creating impactful moments. It's important when you're talking about a diversity and inclusion initiative, it's important when you're talking about mentoring, and it's just important as a leader to think about what kind of moments are you creating space for among your team. I love that. Lisa, one question just to follow up from that, I always like to ask people, how do you find time to read in your busy life as a mom, as a CEO, (laughs) all the many author, all the many hats that you wear, how do you find time to read? Because I, I know we all, or many of us, see the value in it, but sometimes it's hard to find time. Yeah, imperfectly is the answer, is the mm. honest answer. Um, I have a morning ritual, which includes reading. Um, and it really, I'm, you know, I'm, I would say I'm about 75% faithful to it. I'm aiming for 80%, but um, where in the morning, you know, I, I got to move, I got to read. Um, I have to, you know, do some meditation and self-care. So I try to do that. I get up pretty early. Um, and that's the business books. I also, I love Audible. Um, I love my Audible subscription. Not a, not a paid um, a sponsor of the podcast, I'm sure, <laughs> but I um, highly, highly, highly recommend them. Um, and I, I really do that. I, a, lot of, a lot of my reading is actually podcasts. I, I, I'm mm-hmm. a, you know, big, big fan of podcasts as well. And then I really try at least once a quarter to read something that's fiction just for fun. Number one, it's fun. Number two, I love getting lost in a story. And number three, it helps me flex the reading muscle Mm. when you get lost in something that can be a little bit escapist. So, um, and I really watch very little television for for better or for worse. So um, I don't, I don't read as much as I'd love, I'd like to, but um, you know, I would say at least 30 minutes a day if, if I'm sticking to my morning ritual. Two quick questions to follow up on that. One, what is the ideal time for you to wake up in a perfect perfect day? What time does Lisa get up? Ah, uh, that's such a, you know, it's such a, I just actually just was listening to something on chronotypes this morning. So I would say if I didn't have uh, other obligations besides my work and myself, I would get up at 6.30 and just keep my day. But I don't. Okay. I get up at my alarm is set for 4.36. Don't ask oh, wow. why for it. It's supposed to be 4.30. And one time I pressed the button a little too far and it's been 4.36. I snooze twice and I'm out of bed by five. Um, so I build the snooze time in. So it's not too much of a, too much of a, um, a delay. Um, you got you to gotta work with what you got, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, know I know I'm going to press that snooze twice. So um, I'm a 5 a.m. riser. I'm also, I've never, ever been a late night person. I'm kind of a pumpkin by nine o'clock. So um, I get in bed and I read and I'm asleep by 9.30, 9.45 most nights. 
Nice. And you mentioned no TV or, or little TV. Is that it, has that been a deliberate decision? Are you someone that just doesn't like TV, or have you had to say, "I'm going to cut TV out or at least limit it so I can do other things"? You know, I'm laughing because you know I'm a child of the '80s. Thursday nights was must see TV. And, you know, before I figured out that I had to be productive in the world, I can remember coming home, turning on the TV at 3.30 and not turning it off until 9.30 at night. I like TV naturally. Um, it's because it's a slippery slope for me. I mean, I, every now and then I just finished binge watching an amazing series on Netflix called Unorthodox. I love Mrs. Maisel. There's, there's, there's ones that I allow myself as a special treat, but if left to my own devices, it's a, it's like the Pringles can. Once the top mm-hmm. is popped, <laughs> yeah, I feel you. Well, Lisa, this has been so much fun. I want before we wrap up here, I want to make sure people know how to get in touch with you and connect with the mentorship mentorship center of excellence. Can you tell us the best ways for people to find you and find out more about the work that you're doing? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, so our website is www.centerformentoring.com. Center spelled the American way: C E N T E R. And the word for is spelled out. So centerformentoring.com. You can find me on Facebook and LinkedIn um, at um, C4 Mentoring or LZ Fain, F-A-I-N. Um, and those are really the best ways to find me. Awesome. Well, Lisa, I thank you so much for this fun conversation. You've I have learned a ton. This is definitely one that I'm going to go replay and take notes uh, on my own. I feel like you've helped me understand diversity and inclusion and especially as the leader, how I can build a culture that is diverse and inclusive and the goals behind that in a way that I didn't have before I did this interview. So thank you. I look forward to reading your book and I really appreciate you being on today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. Hey friends, thank you for listening today. As you head out and in light of what you just listened to, I want to ask you a few challenge questions to make this practical and give you steps that you can go and apply right now. The first question is, who are you pouring into in a deliberate way? Who are you mentoring? Is there someone in your life that you could help in a real way by entering into a mentor-mentee relationship? You have something to offer. I thought it was really neat how Lisa talked about sometimes mentors really don't think they have anything to offer, but then through this process, they realize just how much they have to offer someone through their experience, through their wisdom. So go and let's do that together. And then on the flip side, who's mentoring you? One thing Lisa said that really helped me see mentoring in a new light is this idea of setting parameters. I've always been a little overwhelmed by the concept of a mentor-mentee relationship because it always seemed like this overwhelming commitment. But Lisa said it can be very clearly defined up front. So maybe you can go to someone that you know they could learn from you or that you could learn from and ask for a six-month mentoring relationship where you meet once a month. That's six meetings, maybe 30 minutes to an hour. And that sets clear expectations for both parties. It's not overwhelming to think about. So I'm encouraged to be more deliberate about finding a mentor. So let's all go out today and make a difference in someone else's life. Let's be intentional outwardly focused and we can collectively make the world a better place life is short let's go make it count today friends